Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite piece, music, TV shows, and more. Are your two pad-footed prognosticators of pedantry, your time loop trapped trivia chasers, your small Pennsylvania towns of small Pennsylvania details. I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> and I'm Jordan Runtog. And today, folks, we're talking about a film that's one of the greatest comedies of all time. Nay. No notes. Of any time. One of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. It's a, it's almost a fairy tale about self-improvement and rebirth. Oh, yeah. A film that argues you can only escape the rut you find yourself in and seek happiness by letting go of your ego and serving others. Perhaps more importantly, it's a film that elevated an obscure regional punchline of a holiday into a national treasure. <laughs> That's right, folks. We're talking about Groundhog Day. Woo! I'm so excited. Yeah, good. Not sure what we can add to the mountain of assessments this film has received by minds far better than ours. So uh, we'll just provide this illustrative anecdote. In 2018, the New York Museum of Modern Art debuted a series of films, beginning with Groundhog Day, that they chose after polling 35 literary and religious scholars. The stumbling block (laughs) towards getting this project off the ground wasn't really for any reason that you would expect. It was held up because there was conflict between the literary and religious scholars polled because so many of them wanted to be the ones to write about Groundhog Day. I mean, I gotta ask you, did you pick up on all the undertones of this movie when you watched it, presumably as a kid? Because I absolutely did not. No, in fact, I didn't watch this when I was a kid. This was, like, not oh, really? one of our, like, weird family, like, Caddyshack, for sure, Vacation, Ghostbusters was the big one for me, but, like, I don't think I came to this until I was, like, a teen, and then and then I was, like, suspected that there was a lot going on under the hood, but no, not really until I was an adult was I was, like, he's trapped in the Bardo! <laughs> you know, like all this, all this, uh, all the philosophy and and religious stuff that goes into it. So, 
Well, I mean, no, I mean, there are movies like The Big Lebowski that I feel like from the moment it was released, this whole mythology grew up and around it. And I remember books were written about yeah. it and just all this stuff and T-shirts. And it just became this thing that you were sort of, at least for people of our age, were supposed to sort of study. And that just wasn't the case for this movie at all, to my knowledge, until I literally went to film school and was <laughs> instructed to study it. I had lumped it in with 90s comedies with maturing sure. comedians like Steve Martin and Father of the Bride or Eddie Murphy and the Nutty Professor or some Dan Aykroyd thing. I just, I, I didn't think of it as anything special other than just a good movie. Uh, and like I said, it really wasn't until I went to film school and it was literally taught in Screenwriting 101 and my professors just drilled it into our heads that this was a perfect movie, full stop. We had one early assignment in class where we were told to watch Groundhog Day and just write out the dramatic beats. Mm-hmm. And then we brought it into class the next day and discussed it because it hadn't really occurred to me. It's such a clever illustration of the basic principles of drama, yeah. which, you know, is kind of not all that different from the old comedy rule of three. It's status quo is established. Then the hero is taken outside of his comfort zone and undergoes a transformation. And then he returns at the end of the movie, a changed person. And Groundhog Day is so clever because everything remains the same in this movie, except the person. It's so great. Yeah. I mean, it's such a funny, it's like, what do you do in the hero's journey when, uh, like, how does the hero's journey change when the hero does not go on a journey (laughs) at all? It's so great. Um, I know that I only have like four frames of reference for everything in my life. And I know I just read ahead and I got so mad that you did this. So I know I'm sorry. Well, give me a minute. I mean, I, I liken Groundhog Day to the music of the Beach Boys. Hear me out. Hear me out. It's something that we all sort of grew up with. And on the surface, it seems kind of quaint and a little hokey. But then the more you look at it, you see how complex and borderline genius it is. And you also, you start to pick up on the darkness and the sadness beneath it. You know, I mean, much like learning about the pain and darkness behind the music of the Beach Boys, like Brian Wilson's aborted attempt to compose his teenage symphony to God, which was this Herculean task that nearly killed him. You learn about the making of Groundhog Day and just the deep existential dread at its heart. And, you know, it was very nearly this insanely dark movie where Bill Murray was trapped in the small Pennsylvania town for 10,000 years. And then you get all the behind the scenes stories about how he was fighting with Harold Ramis, one of his best friends and children just, and fighting with children. Yeah. Just the, the number of people's sanity this movie cost. It's stick. I don't know. I, I just find it so fascinating, both as a piece of art and the story behind it. Well, From the convoluted writing process that involved firing and then rehiring the original writer, to the real-life pain animating Bill Murray's performance, to his split from longtime collaborator Harold Ramis, precipitated by this film, to whatever the hell Groundhog Punch is, here's everything you didn't know about Groundhog Day. We should just start punching in the, uh, That song rules. Dude, Kenny Loggins fucks. Yeah, yes, he does. I forget, did you interview him or. uh, Yeah. Or Messina? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I always get him and um, and John Oates confused. It's the mustache. I don't think anyone cares about poor John Oates. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Not even Daryl at this point. Just a legal obstacle. I was going to say, definitely not Daryl. He's filled out a uh, restraining order, right? Mm hmm.
But on to happier topics. Yeah. Groundhog Day. <laughs> Groundhog Day was written by a guy named Danny Rubin. After moving to L.A. to pursue his screenwriting dreams, he found himself sitting in a theater in the early 90s, waiting for a movie to start. And the past the time, he pulled out his copy of Anne Rice's The Vampire Lestat, as one does, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, because vampires are immortal, if I recall correctly, he started mulling over the idea of immortality. And he went down various tangents that one would in what you describe as a winding, bong-ripping discussion about the topic, what you would do with your time if you were immortal, and how you would change over time if eternal life would then suddenly become boring or pointless, which I think is a topic that was discussed in the Robin Williams movie Bicentennial Man. And also Highlander. Better movie. Much but in Highlander, movie. they solve it by cutting each other's heads off, so. <laughs> Again, like I said, better movie. Yeah, better movie. Danny Rubin, the writer, thought about men living their lives in a state of perpetual adolescent arrested development, thinking, as he recalled in 2010, there are some people, those arrested development type men, who can't really outgrow their adolescence. And I thought, well, maybe one lifetime isn't enough. Maybe you need more. Thus inspired, he started work on an idea about a man slowly changing over the course of his eternal life. And as he fleshed out the concept, he soon realized that the idea wasn't very practical as a movie, solely because of the intricacies and expenses of both depicting historical events and then also imagining a future for the protagonist whose life extends over many, many centuries. Which, that's why we'll never get Nick Cave's awesome pitch for Gladiator 2, where Maximus goes to hell, fights his way out of hell, and then is like an, an eternal immortal soldier who we see him fighting through like every historically significant war. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Nick, Nick Cave literally wrote that as a screenplay. It's like floating Oh, you wrote around. the screenplay? Yeah, that was his pitch for it. You can see Whoa. it like floating. He's written other stuff, but that, that actually got made. But that was like the coolest idea ever <laughs> that we'll never see. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, you got like, you think of the cigar chomping executive. Ah, immortality. Nah, too expensive. Yeah, immortality sounds expensive. <laughs> uh other influences on this nascent Groundhog Day idea for Danny, I almost said Danny Elfman, for Danny Rubin include the short story Christmas Every Day, which was written in 1892 by William Dean Howlers, which I'm not familiar with, and also the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, which we'll get to later. So Rubin, he's thinking, okay, like we said, immortality, meh, doesn't really translate to the big screen. So then he recalled a short story outline that he'd written two years earlier, but followed a man who woke up every morning to find out that he was trapped in the same day over and over again. And in what you describe as a genius marriage of convenience, <laughs> Rubin stuck the two ideas together, which he felt solved two problems at once. By portraying eternity as a repeating cycle instead of a continuous progression of linear time, he eliminated the production costs of constantly changing settings throughout history, and he also believed that the repetitive structure would offer more dramatic and comedic possibilities, because, as you note, comedy works in threes. What would your, what would your hell be? Being trapped in the same day, or just being forced to live forever as time goes around you? Oh, because I guess if you're forced to live forever, you have to say goodbye. I mean, I think about being in New York for almost 20 years and saying goodbye to both places that I've loved and people who've moved away and how sad that's been. So I guess the city banks that have closed that you've missed, you know, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg lives in New Jersey. Now I know it's been very hard for you. <laughs> you moved away. Oh, uh, so I, I guess that's 
pretty sad, but I guess it would be invigorating to see the changes and you, you know, every day would be different as opposed to just the mind dulling boredom of having every day being exactly the same, but at least you'd have the comfort. I choose the time loop. You choose the time loop? There's just fewer logistical problems. Because if you live forever, what do you, you gotta, you gotta like set up bank accounts to like uh, see, keep yeah. falsifying documents to become your own son and your own heir? Like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you go to the DMV? Like, when, you know, <laughs> did you get captured by like guys in white coats at Johns Hopkins once they realize that you're just not dying? And do they put you in like a little glass cage and study you? Yeah. Like, how do you, like, like if you get, if you get like mortally injured, you know, uh, but, but you know, you are still immortal, like, but you're like, well, I need to get, my hand has been cut off or something. Like, I need to get this dealt with. And they go there and they like take your blood test and they're like, something's off here. And then the government comes for you. You know, if you're yeah. stuck in a time loop, at least you know. You know, I have 24 hours to do whatever I want to do without... Oh, I hadn't thought about that. The yeah. consequence-free yeah. element. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I yeah, otherwise you'd wind up like the kid in E.T. Like, you'd be in, like, some, like, like clean room for the rest of your life, probably. <laughs> yes. This is why we're screenwriters. Sound of bong water bubbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> These are second bong rip ideas, though. These aren't yeah. first yeah, bong they rip are. ideas. Yes, they are. So seeking a day to ensnare his heroine, Danny Rubin initially wanted to set the film on February 29th, which I think will be the day we end up dropping this episode. I didn't think about that. This owed to the comic possibilities of a leap year. What day would you, uh, would you have set this movie in? Um, I don't know, man. I feel like, like the obvious answer to me in terms of mischief would be like St. Patrick's Day or like some kind of a day that's oh, just wow. known for like public insanity so you can just go around and get a, get away with a lot more but April um, Fool's Day <laughs> does, does anyone like does any did, uh, I don't know I have a problem with people who take April Fool's Day seriously um, yeah I would say like St. Patrick's Day maybe New Year's people were like reckless uh, and ridiculous on New Year's you know that kind, of lends it a, Halloween. that kind of lends it a poignancy of being like, you know, forever, you know, for your, forever on the cusp of renewal. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Thanks. Not bad. Groundhog Day 2, hog harder. <laughs> Groundhog Day 2, after the hog. <laughs> High on the hog. After hog Anything? set. Before, <laughs> before, that's, our, that's our sad, that's our sad link letter trilogy. Before hog set. <laughs> After hog set, before hog rise. <laughs> so Danny Rubin considered putting this movie on leap year, leap day, leap day. What are we I saying think you here? Call February twenty ninth. You yeah. know what I mean. Come on, just keep with me, folks. But then when he looked at the calendar, he settled on the next nearest holiday, February second, Groundhog Day. Which I've said I pronounced as Groundhog's Day my whole life. It was literally mm. today when I realized that it was singular. So thank you for that. Ruben felt that Groundhog Day worked because, while enough people were sort of vaguely aware of it, like Arbor Day, few people knew that there was actually a whole festival around it in the small Pennsylvania town of Punxsutawney, something that Ruben was acquainted with through a prior job he had writing for a local phone company, which does he mean like writing for phone books? I don't know that I, yeah, you need like to be a writer. Just like promo cop. I don't know, dude. You used to be able to uh, get all kinds of jobs writing in this country. That's okay. Fair. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Print didn't used to be a dead medium. Yes, 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 yes. I didn't realize until recently that they don't have phone books anymore either. We live in hell. 
<laughs> but you know, we got we're gonna get AI porn out of Sora or whatever that whatever yeah you know whatever that tweet was this week where a guy was like, imagine coming home and telling your AI that you want to watch Shrek two but with Brad Pitt voicing Shrek and Travis Kelsey playing Donkey and like Mr Beast pops in and like you know you see that tweet? I did yeah yeah okay. I mean, it kind of sounds like being in screenwriting school, honestly. <laughs> it's like, you want to sell a script? This is what you do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Groundhog Day, but with werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> That's mine. Kind of with rule. I had a great idea for a script last night just called Jackie Chan Goes to Hell, where uh, you have Jackie Sold. Chan. Yeah, right? Dude, what, what happens, Heigl? What? Tell me what happens. Uh, Jackie Chan is old and, uh, you know... <laughs> And dies and goes to hell, uh, and as as um, you know, it could either be Dante's Dante's hell, or as Big Trouble in Little China told us, Chinese people got a lot of hells. So you you know, you basically just get your classic Jackie Chan stunts and fights and and you know hijinks, and he's gonna make some faces at f- some point, and eventually he has to kill the devil. So is it almost like? Jackie Chan in that Robin Williams movie. Yet the second misbegotten 90s Robin Williams movie reference of this episode. Is it like Jackie Chan in What Dreams May Come? Yeah. yeah Although exactly. I guess he's in Purgatory. Okay. Yeah. But with more like fighting. Okay. Yeah. Will he fall down a, a thing with a bunch of light bulbs on it? He sure will. Okay, good. <laughs> that's, that's my only, it's the only thing I want in my contract. <laughs> but Danny Rubin, uh, I guess more cynically, he landed on Groundhog Day because he remembered thinking, it's a completely unexploited holiday. This is a quote. We can play the movie on TV every year, like the Charlie Brown specials. What a hustler. He likes to front later that he wasn't part of the Hollywood machine, but that is a Hollywood exec justification (laughs) if I've ever heard one. (laughs) Uh, Ironically... Danny Rubin had no further expectations for Groundhog Day besides being a calling card script. He'd already sold a screenplay for the thriller Hear No Evil, which was a negatively reviewed flop, which is only interesting in retrospect because it starred Martin Sheen and Marley Maitland, who'd reunite on the West Wing later. But his agent suggested that he write another screenplay just to grab attention and get in meetings, which is sort of a semi-common practice for young screenwriters. I remember being told this a lot in school. A lot of genuinely good scripts don't get greenlit in Hollywood just for logistical reasons, like we were talking about earlier with Nick Cave's amazing Gladiator (laughs) 2, the Immortal Gladiator script. Uh, I was often told when I would finish scripts for school that my scripts worked on paper, which was code for, you know, it'd be really hard to translate it to a visual medium without gargantuan costs. So a lot of young writers who haven't had their individuality beaten out of them (laughs) would sometimes submit scripts that they sensed wouldn't really ever get made, but it was just to show off their unique voice and individuality, which would result in meetings for other projects that they would sometimes get assigned. I'm pretty sure there's a list of famous-ish screenwriters who got their big breaks this way by submitting calling card scripts, but I don't feel like putting it together. And speaking like not feeling like it, Heigl, tell us about the history of Groundhog Day, the holiday. So, so, you know, Ricky Gervais voice, like, Groundhog's in it. (laughs) A cursory internet search will turn up a bunch of articles claiming that Groundhog Day is descended from a European Christian holiday called Candlemas, which is true, um, that occurs at the halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. And a lot of people will make the connection with that and a pagan holiday called Imbolc, 
which is, uh, I think, uh, Celtic. And so there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's like, did you know Groundhog Day is descended from a pagan holiday? Candlemas's Christian roots come from the point in Jesus's life when Mary and Joseph presented him at the Temple of Jerusalem. And supposedly part of Candlemas Christian superstition lore was that if there were sunny skies that day, a stormy and cold second half of winter was in store for you, while cloudy skies on Candlemas uh, signified approaching warm weather. This makes me feel a lot better because my whole life I was confused why the groundhog seeing its shadow meant six more weeks of winter because a shadow means it's sunny and you would think that means that winter's easing up and you've got spring on the way. So I I guess I still don't have an explanation, but I feel better knowing that it's ancient and therefore doesn't have to make sense. Yeah, I mean, buddy, if that's the first inconsistency you uh, uncover in Christianity, you're in for a long, hard road. So when this uh, expanded into Europe, specifically Germany, that lore was broadened to include animals and their shadows. Uh, Various people will claim that uh, they were using things like hedgehogs and also badgers, which is amazing. Can you imagine Badger Day? That's cool. It's like a big feral badger. However, uh, I did find at least one person, a Brandeis grad student in history uh, at her blog, Tales of Times Forgotten. Uh, claims that this is all horseshit. She writes that while Groundhog Day does originate from Candlemas, there is little historical effort to suggest that Candlemas had anything to do with Imbolc. Imbolc, she says, is only mentioned in old Irish literature in the 10th century AD, as opposed to Candlemas, which can be found in old Latin texts as old as the 4th century AD. She continues, Candlemas was first celebrated by Christians living in the Roman Empire in late antiquity, whereas Imbolc has historically been celebrated by Gaelic-speaking peoples in Ireland and Scotland, neither of which was part of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. It's hard to imagine why Christians in the Roman Empire would be copying a holiday from Gaelic-speaking pagans from what they would have seen as the distant outskirts of the known world. So there's that. Now you get to ruin people's trivia when they say, do you know Groundhog Day is actually descended from a pagan holiday called Imhotel? Uh, which is just a great thing to feel. I've been doing it my whole life. I'm clearly the picture of happiness. So, you know, sally forth, my, my bitter young trivia pals. Anyway, when the Pennsylvania Dutch got their grubby little fingers into that corner of the world. Little pale, bony fingers. Yeah, expanding candle mass and the weather predicting animals to the Keystone State. They ran into the problem of not having badgers or hedgehogs around. One thing they did have, though, were groundhogs. So, consequently, the earliest mention of Groundhog Day is a diary entry from February 1840 by a Welsh guy from Morgantown, PA, commenting on this weird thing his German neighbors were up to. <laughs> just like reenacting the, first... the opening of The Lion King with a groundhog. Yeah, it was just like, we, I just like the idea of him like sort of peering his head out of his house. Honey? Like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> the Lieberschnitzes are doing something really weird. Um, the first reported news of the holiday was uh, supposedly made by the Punxsutawney Spirit of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania in 1886, with the holiday being made official the following year thanks to Clymer Frias, <laughs> the paper's city editor. After the inaugural event, sightseers gathered around at the, yes, that is what it's really called, Gobbler's Knob, <laughs> for a feast made of various groundhog-based dishes and something called Groundhog Punch. That last thing which is made from vodka, milk, and orange juice, was said to add seven years to Phil's life and was forcibly poured down the animal's throat once they caught him. <laughs> it gets grosser, don't worry. 
Groundhog was such a treat in Punxsutawney at the time that the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Woodchuck Steak was the, quote, gastronomical climax of a banquet held in honor of then-Pennsylvania Governor Edward Stewart in 1909. Gobbler's Knob, isn't that a Three Six Mafia song? Well done. Right. So wait, wait, I have a question for you. Go on. You say that Groundhog's Day was made an official holiday by the editor of the Punxsutawney Spirit newspaper? Yeah, and people latched onto it, dude. There's whole society. There's like an official society. There's all the. It's like the Masons, man. But we were know. editors of a much bigger outlet. Can we just create holidays? Well, you know, papers used to have power. We should have a holiday. You should make Badger Day. <laughs> we sh- we should have a holiday. You should make Badger Day. Badger Day is every day of the year in my heart. <laughs> Incidentally, the rodent's full title, given to him in 1886, is Punxsutawney Phil, Seer of Seers. <laughs> Sage of Sages, Prognosticator of Prognosticator, and Weather Prophet Extraordinary. Uh, funnily enough, a few states use their own groundhogs to celebrate the holiday rather than relying on Phil, including General Bo Lee of Atlanta, Georgia, Sir Walter Wally from Raleigh, North Carolina, and Birmingham Bill from Birmingham, Alabama. How many of those groundhogs do we think are racist? <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. Oi. You know, a shadow, it doesn't count if he sees his shadow from underneath a burning cross, right? Oh, wow. The National Climatic Data Center compared U.S. national temperatures from 1988 to 2012 to determine the accuracy of Phil's predictions. And that little idiot has an accuracy rate of 39% or less than what he would get if you were just flipping a coin. However, that's better than a lot of people's batting averages in the major major leagues, so... Maybe he's yeah, but something. they're actually doing something, and he, that's true. And he is not. Uh, perhaps we would do well to heed the suggestion of the people for the ethical treatment of animals, or PETA, who have called now at least twice to replace Phil with an animatronic groundhog for a cruelty-free holiday. That gives me PTSD to run down Chuck E. Cheese's in my Massachusetts suburb. Ah, who gives a shit? Just let him, who who cares? Nothing matters at this point, man. Just make it a robot groundhog. Doesn't matter. Because then, uh, then old, then old, uh, you know, Bill de Blasio can kill as many of them as he wants. Oh yeah, what happened? They just dropped it? Yeah. It was a New York, I mean, it must have been a... Staten Island Chuck, come on. Right, oh, we didn't mention Staten Island Chuck. No, no, we didn't. This is about Pennsylvania. (laughs) Staten Island, Staten Island's been living too well for far too long. I'm taking them to task. Yeah, for the un- for the unfamiliar, uh, Bill de Blasio was doing this the same the Groundhog Day at um, Staten Island, which you know their groundhog's name is Staten Island Chuck, and the little bastard wriggled his way out of old Bill's hands and fell and then died later. I didn't know he died. Yeah, requiem in Terrapax and so forth. He's probably in hell though. He's in Staten Island. He's almost assuredly racist. I'm just imagining if he was used for some kind of like bizarre like monster signal it's like left on somebody like le- left on bill de blasio's doorstep or his bed or something <laughs> like the teamsters union leaves a dead dead groundhog that'd probably be the landscapers union <laughs> big phil anyway big phil, big phil ratted on us now he digs with the groundhogs <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. A podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the film Groundhog Day. Danny Rubin spent eight weeks working on the script. Seven of those eight weeks were making notes to define the rules and characters that inhabit this world. And only one week writing the script, which is devastating to me for somebody who's <laughs> spent eight years plugging away at a script. Uh, the whole time he was writing, he was struggling to figure out why the time loop had happened and trying out all manner of technological, magical, and celestial options to why this happened, why this occurred. Ultimately, he considered the exact cause of the time loop immaterial and felt that the lack of explanation added to the story's themes, saying, none of us knows exactly how we got to be stuck here either. David Byrne voice, you may be asking yourself, <laughs> how did I get here? He's very frank. Yeah, this is such a smart movie. This is not my large land-based <laughs> rodent. <laughs> 
But as I touched on, uh, as I waxed poetically during the, uh, the intro, the original draft was much, much darker. For just one of many examples, it opens with Phil already, Phil the main character, not the groundhog, mm-hmm. I imagine, already <laughs> stuck in the time loop. And he was already predicting what the radio host would say after his alarm clock goes off. And that goes on to interactions with hotel guests that would culminate with him attacking a pedestrian outside. I think this opening is awesome. I think it's really intriguing because everyone watching is going to wonder why this guy just went out of his hotel or, or I guess bed and breakfast and just attacked the guy in the street. And why does he know exactly what the radio hosts are going to say? It's really intriguing, right? But studio executives felt that the audience would feel cheated if they didn't get to see Phil's reaction to discovering that he's caught in a time loop, which as much as I hate to side with the executives, Makes a certain amount of sense. It's yeah, great to see I mean, this sort of slowly dawn on him. It's it's better for the darker movie that he wanted to make. It's not yeah. as good for like a family friendly, you know, technologically ad- advanced, one hundred percent efficient, you know, ninety minute three act comedy. Right. Save your save your in media res bullshit for art for film school. You know, this is the <laughs> this is the big leagues. <laughs> I we mean, it's we like beat that we about- beat that out of you out here. <laughs> He wants to open it in media res? I thought we paid her off already. <laughs> I mean, it was like I was saying earlier, this movie is a masterpiece disguised as standard fare early 90s fantasy rom-com. And that was very much not the movie that Danny Rubin wanted to make. And as much as I love the finished product, I wonder how good this movie might have been if they just leaned into it being truly weird. Mm-hmm. Like if Michelle Gondry had directed this, how cool that would be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a much different film and and probably wouldn't have made as much money and still be lodged yeah. in the hearts and minds of everyone. But, man, I'd have liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when director Harold Ramis rewrote the script, which we'll talk about more in a moment, he added the opening for context with Phil at the TV studio doing the weather and, and kind of how he wound up in Punxsutawney to begin with. Initially, the studio wouldn't even greenlight the script without an explanation as to why Phil got stuck in this time loop. And so they came up with kind of not great explanations ranging from an ex-girlfriend's curse on Phil to a scientist's malfunctioning machine. Ooh, I really don't like that one. The studio continued to push for having an explanation for the time loop all during production, but Harold Ramis and producer Trevor Albert settled on a classic movie-making scam. They slated the, quote, explanation scene for the very end of the shooting schedule, where it was virtually guaranteed to never get filmed because movies always run, you know, late. And they secretly agreed that even if it was filmed, they would get rid of it in the edit, which is good. I like the fact that there's no explanation for it. Oh, yeah. It makes it so much better. It's so cool. Yeah. Danny Rubin said that the comedy beats of the script were the easiest to imagine. He said one of the earliest scenes he wrote was about Phil using the time loop to have sex with women, and another being dedicated to seeing how far he could get outside the town of Punxsutawney before the clock reset and he was back in his bed at the bed and breakfast. But like I said earlier, Ruben's draft was much darker than the film ended up, focusing on Phil's loneliness and allowing him to free himself only after realizing that he could use his situation to better the lives of others. Interestingly, the passage of time in this early draft was marked explicitly with a really unique device. Phil tracks his days by reading one page of a book each day in the bed and breakfast library. And his low point comes when he runs out of books, which means he was there 
for a hell of a long time. Yeah, we'll get on that. We'll get to that. Don't you folks worry. All the people who've calculated the potential amount of time he was in this time loop. Apparently, in one of the early drafts, Phil was stuck in Punxsutawney for something like 10,000 years. So that's horrifying. The original ending of this early draft features kind of a, I think, kind of a corny twist. Yeah, it sucks. Phil confesses his love to the Andy McDowell character, who rejects his advances, which is hilarious because the whole movie she's been portrayed as this angel type figure she rejects him because she's not ready to accept love because she's trapped in her own time loop i hate that i hate that a lot it also i think switched perspectives so that she would so this was when they still had the voiceover in and so she would suddenly be narrating the movie is what i read um which oh sounds, weird yeah horrible i mean that's almost interesting having a movie that's told for 95 percent of it through the voiceover of one character and then have the voiceover switch i've never heard of that being done that's kind of cool in its own way i mean danny rubin i guess he really liked to subvert yeah he sure you know, did traditional <laughs> yeah sure, sure sure did uh so yeah that twist ending a rare misstep for danny rubin i also heard there's a version that was going to end with bill murray's character killing himself only to wake up and discover that he was back in his own bed and the day still wasn't over, which I guess means he hadn't tried killing himself the entire movie up to that point, or the yeah. potential 10,000 years he was stuck in that time loop, which I find hard to believe. But that would have been a cool ending if uh, they hadn't burned that device earlier in the script and he jumped off a cliff or whatever after Andy McDowell rejected his advances <laughs> and then he just woke up back in the bed with the alarm clock going off. And then just see him open his eyes and just roll his eyes and then and like cut to black credits roll. That's pretty good. <sighs> That's grim, which is good. Yeah. This is good. We like we like grim. Yeah. Uh, the script was apparently shown to uh, like upwards of 50 producers and it ultimately came to Harold Ramis via his agent as he was about to embark on a phase of his career that could broadly be termed redemption comedies like <laughs> multiplicity, analyze this and bedazzled. You know, you got your uh, men are stuck in various phases of idiocy in their life, and uh, they get redeemed by the end. Then, and everyone rejoices. Um, he liked Ruben's script, but reportedly said he didn't laugh once while reading it. Ooh, yeah. Ruben had two offers for Groundhog Day: one from an indie studio with a lower budget, where he would maintain creative control, or one with a higher budget from Ramis and Columbia. When he went with Ramis in Columbia, he lost some control over the script. Ramis added humor, cut the part where Rita gets stuck in her own loop, and eventually, the studio just went and denied Ruben's option to turn in a third draft, uh, and Ramis took the whole project over. He removed the character of Rita's boyfriend, Max. He cut out Phil's narration. He cut every scene where Phil attempts to escape from Puxatani. Which I really like because it makes the story so much more claustrophobic, and I've heard it described evocatively as... Phil goes from being a prisoner of the town to the god of the town, hmm. which is cool. It is. Ramis streamlined Ruben's script into a three-act studio movie by boiling it down to a very clear arc. This is the worst day of Phil's life. What would make it even worse? Repeating it every day. That's so good. God, that's so good. That's so Harold Ramis, too. The dialogue in the original version of Danny Rubin's script is a little on the nose. You can see earlier drafts of uh, Groundhog Day online, and there's one scene between Phil and Rita, Andy McDowell's character, in the diner that reads as follows. Phil's voiceover. Me and Rita, together, was the most obvious thing in the world. 
Phil to Rita. Have you ever felt like you were reliving the same day over and over again? Rita, like deja vu? Phil, more like deja, deja, deja. Rita, so you think you've been here before? Phil nods. And how does this evening turn out? Phil, I'll tell you what I do know. Even in a day as long as this, even in a lifetime of endless repetition, there's still room for possibilities. It's just dead on. For somebody who's so good at coming up with ingenious premises and great structures, that dialogue is pretty horrendous. That's why we have script doctors. (laughs) Says the guy who has never... Doctor to script? Hasn't completed... No, me. Oh. (laughs) Who hasn't completed a script in 15 years. Nice. (laughs) Oh, no, 10 years. 10 years, sorry. Nice. (laughs) Ultimately, Harold Ramis's rewrite turned this scene into Phil asking Rita to describe her dream man, which is great because it both showcases the Phil character's deviousness. He's he's researching so that he can use that later. And also gave Bill Murray ample time to act like a lech because he's like, you know, everything she says, like, sounds like me, me, me. And me again. It's a great, it, it's such a great way to twist that scene. I also read that Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin, or maybe just Danny Rubin, use the famous five stages of grief model from psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying as a way to outline their script. I guess they wanted to show Phil going through the, you know, denier, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance of his whole predicament, mm-hmm. which is ironic considering her book is called On Death and Dying and Phil can't die. Ramis's version attracted Bill Murray to the project, but the two immediately clashed over the film's tone, with Murray hoping to highlight the philosophical elements and Ramis wanting the comedy foregrounded. The studio was happier with Ramis's draft, but they ultimately rehired Rubin to reassess the script and give notes. I kind of feel bad for uh, for old Danny Rubes just getting yeah. kicked off and then brought back, essentially. Well, I'll explain why. <laughs> Ramis was actually ultimately just using Rubin as a bulwark against Murray. He thought sending Rubin to work on the script with Murray would stop Bill Murray from bombarding him with early morning phone calls about the character and the tone of the script. And then once, when Ramis called to check on their progress, Murray uh, asked Rubin to pretend he wasn't there. They call that foreshadowing in screenwriting school. (laughs) Yeah, so imagine signing over your project, being denied the chance to turn in a revision after someone else hacks it up. And then just being rehired to run interference for one of the world's biggest comedy stars because the director didn't want to deal with them anymore. Uh, Ultimately, Ruben and Murray didn't fare much better. Ruben found Murray's more laid-back approach to writing frustrating, and the pair were still working on a script a month before filming began. They were hewing it closer to Ruben's original before Ruben and Ramis then collaborated on another rewrite, working on individual sections alone and then editing each other's work before Ramis spent a final few days refining it himself. The process of writing this sounds like an absolute nightmare. Sure does, bub. <laughs> all, the ba- all the back and forth with all the egos and all like the rules of the world and everything. Yeah. But apparently Harold Ramis was turned off by what he viewed as Danny Rubin's earnest preachiness and sweet sentimental moments. And instead he made it a much more grouchy but funny script. Some scenes that were written but not filmed include Phil praying at a church, gambling, and a scene that Murray personally vetoed of Phil stripping naked to force an elderly man out of a swimming pool. I wonder how stripping naked forced him out of the swimming pool. Huh. 
They also cut a bunch of scenes where Phil goes to sort of ridiculous lengths to prevent tragedies in town, all in the name of making efficient use of his time as the town ubermensch. It's just, you know, he knows all the bad things that are going to happen in town, and he can only be so many places at once, so he has to get creative. And one of these ways includes Phil putting a large rock in a road to stop a truck delivering fish, because later that day at a restaurant, a patron would choke on said fish, which is really clever, but pretty unwieldy. Yeah, it's a good thing that got cut. <laughs> yeah. A large pain in the ass that was filmed but didn't make it into the finished movie included a breakdown where Phil gives himself a mohawk, spray paints his room, and destroys it with a chainsaw. They filmed this scene for three days before deciding to go with a much simpler scene of Bill Murray breaking a pencil on his nightstand only to see it reappear whole the next morning, which basically conveyed the same message in a much simpler and less scenery-chewing way. They also nixed a scene in which Phil kills the groundhog in its lair to try to end the time loop, which is a hilarious leap of logic, because this was seen as too close to Bill Murray's character in Caddyshack. You know, he was, you know, licensed to kill groundhogs. Was it groundhog or a gopher? I think it's a gopher in Groundhog. In, in oh, it was a gopher. Caddyshack. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Greasy grimy gopher guts. Right? Isn't he saying that at one <laughs> yeah, point? That's yeah, that's right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, however, he did pay tribute to Caddyshack, one of his first collaborations with Harold Ramis, with his Be the Hat line, in which he and Rita are playing cards and trying to throw them into the hat. That is a reference to Caddyshack and its famous exhortation to be the ball. Hilariously, given all this conflict with Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, like pretty much every director from 1988 to 2008, originally wanted Tom Hanks to play the role of Phil, but he ultimately decided against it because Hanks was quote too nice which think, i think is think, a lot of reasons do you think tom hanks just had like a dedicated fax machine in his in some wing of his house that was just getting scripts like 24 7 constantly for every oh, he probably movie. had a separate door with like you know <laughs> even at the script door yeah i mean jesus christ yeah his age i mean he, he must have had a whole there must have been a i mean his agent there's no way one agent could keep up with that no. But also, it's funny how many movies Hanks was considered for but ultimately didn't get because they thought he was too nice. Mm. But we're talking about a few recently. I mean, I think Harry, well, I think he opted out of Harry because he thought he was too nice. But I feel like there were a few others we were talking about recently, too. Except for it and Twister, too. Although it wasn't because he was too nice. But uh, Just to give you some sense of the tone that Danny Rubin thought this movie was going to be, he wanted Kevin Klein to play the part of Phil, the male lead. I could see that. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. You couldn't? I don't, I don't think he could be... I don't know. I guess I just, I'm just i so used to the character of Phil being this rumpled guy that yeah, Bill Murray would, plays. Yeah, I, yeah, it would have made his sort of uh, winning over of Andy uh, less of a, a, a personal turnaround, you know, because Kevin Klein, everyone falls in love with Kevin Klein. Yeah, so yeah, he's too refined. He's married to yeah. Phoebe Cates. yeah. Michael Keaton was also offered the role, but supposedly he didn't understand the script and passed, which he says he deeply regrets. Other possible leads were Chevy Chase, John Travolta, and Steve Martin. What do you think about those? Uh, I think Chevy Chase and Steve Martin would have been amazing because they both yeah. have that genuine streak of malice. Like, I feel unsafe around yeah. both of those men, as is justified, well justified. Yeah. 
Um, Steve Martin, that surprises me. Chevy, definitely. But Steve, Steve Martin has a kind of unhinged, like, I mean, he's like a twinkly. Planes, trains, and automobiles. He's speech like a twinkly eyed older guy now, but like, there's something about him that just has like this. Maybe it's just because I think of him as the dentist in uh, in Little Shop of Horrors, but. Oh, wow. There's, yeah, yeah, there's some kind of darkness there i just and chevy chase obviously is perfect for the first part yeah. but i don't think his acting chops or personality yeah. were, would enable him to make the turn <laughs> and become likable as his real life did not enable him to <laughs> no travolta would that would have been bizarre no travolta has yeah, that, neither yeah. chop first of all everyone is just inclined to see like because this would have been like kind of pudgy travolta so everyone would have just been <laughs> inclined to see him as just like pitiable and like and he's not funny enough to like to do all the comic turns no that's a that's a miss. Ugh. Did you ever see angry. Michael? I'm angry. Yes. And that's why I'm angry. John Travolta gets serious. He was good in the movie where he was Michael the Fallen Angel. It was pretty good. I'm talking yeah. about that movie. That pisses yeah. me off. It's an awful movie. Uh, okay. Alright. <laughs> Sorry. Phenomenon? Y- yeah, that movie sucks too. <laughs> Phenomenon was okay. Jordan, buddy. Pal, my friend. Phenomenon. But Harold Ramis decided on Bill Murray. And when Danny Rubin expressed doubts about Murray's ability to veer from unlikability to sweet, Ramis assured him, don't worry, this is what Bill Murray can do. He can be that nasty and still make you like him. Co-star Andy McDowell agreed, later saying, Bill's a jerk, but he makes you laugh. I find it surprising that Danny Rubin doubted Bill Murray's ability in this movie because the role is basically the exact same role that he played in Scrooge, where he's this unlikable guy at a TV station who learns to become a better person through yeah. supernatural circumstances. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's surprising. Also, like, who are you first-time screenwriter Danny Rubin to, like, cast dispersions <laughs> on uh, one of the biggest comedians in the world, Bill Murray? Like, all right, bud. <laughs> I guess we'll take your notes. Danny, <laughs> get get the f- out of my office. <laughs> but continuing the through line of Bill Murray being a champ to everybody who he was not working directly with or who wasn't in Hollywood, the guy who played Ned Ryerson, who we'll talk to in a minute, Stephen Tobolsky, recalled pointing out to Bill that the residents of the town where they were filming gathered to watch and they... They all looked hungry, at which point Bill Murray ran into a nearby bakery, bought them out of danishes, and tossed them into the crowd, presumably Frisbee style. It doesn't say that, but I'm just guessing. You have to imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's talks about him like going out when they were shooting Ghostbusters and just like panning out like $100 bills to people on the street. Just like he, he just he's he does genuinely seem to care about the little people. Yeah, sure. Um, and then there's the allegations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, I I have a hard time justifying. I mean, do, do we think Bill Murray is actually a, a good person? Capital G, good person or bad person? Do we? Or side note, do we think he does all these grand gestures of generosity to cover up some sense of inner guilt for bad things he has done? <sighs> you know, maybe I love Bill Murray. Bill Murray's a beloved guy. I don't know why. I'm, yeah, I'm even go no, down this for route. sure. But I mean, it's it's except there are, for the there are a lot of allegations about him, and you know you you got to address those the same way you do anybody, anybody else that those are out about. Um, I think that duality has been part of his brand for so long that maybe he kind of got away with a lot because people were like, Oh, Bill's just being Bill, you know? And and that's maybe a little more sinister than, than anything to build Uh. your, uh, 
build your brand around kind of just publicly being a dick to people and then, you know, not actually <laughs> having and not ever making the, 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 the face turn in the final third of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Dan Aykroyd would refer to him as the Murricane. Yeah. Which I appreciate. How's Dan Aykroyd doing? He's still hawking that, I hope that vodka in the skull-shaped bottle. That's one of like three facts I know about him that I hold dear to my heart. He has webbed toes also. Oh, all right, I'm stopping you right oh, now. Oh. Jesus Christ. What are you, Quentin Tarantino? Quick thumbnail sketch of Harold Ramis and Bill Murray's collaborations. In Spotlight. Spotlight. In 1969, Harold Ramis was accepted into the Second City, an improvisational Chicago sketch comedy troupe that would birth the careers of not just Bill Murray, but John Malushi, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Stephen Colbert, and everybody. Like, the list goes on. Ramis credits an LSD trip, however, with realizing he didn't belong in a live performance situation and briefly left the theater, only to return and find that Belushi had taken his spot. And this sort of, uh, uh, you know, typecast Ramis into the straight man role that he would play for years. Meanwhile, Murray followed his brother Brian's path to Second City, but struggling to make ends meet in the realm of improvisational comedy, to the surprise of no one, uh, <laughs> Bill was arrested at Chicago's O'Hare Airport at only 21 years old with a whopping 10 pounds of marijuana. Wow. The arrest is something he credits with re-energizing his dedication to comedy and acting. Didn't uh, Tim Allen get busted for some phenomenal amount of coke that he was smuggling Yeah, through? and then he flipped on, and then he ratted out all his buds. Yeah. I don't know how he's, I mean, presumably all those guys are dead now, but I don't know how he made that. Maybe it's the other way around. You will take this role in this shitty sitcom, or else we will. <laughs> but no, I want to do something edgy and meaningful. That's that's interesting. Being forced into a lifetime of network cop. No, because he got well. Whatever. Moving on. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not letting. We, we don't know where that money went. I'm not letting. You will take this terrible role that pays you way too much, and you will pay ninety nine percent of that to us. Oh, maybe it does launder. Or maybe else it's we'll a take you out. Here. I don't know. I'm done thinking about too. That's a script. That's a script right there. King of Comedy 2, King Harder. <laughs> Got some unhinged. Okay. Heavy, King of Comedy 2, Heavy Lies the Crown. Okay. No, you're onto something now. Yeah. We're cooking. Yeah. There we go. There we go. I love this. Bill Murray and Harold Ramis met when Bill Murray was a teen because Harold Ramis, he's six years older, and he was initially friends with Bill's older brother, Brian Murray, through Second City, who has a small part in groundhog day and brian took ramus to meet his brother bill at a local golf course where he ran the refreshment stand it was his teenage job which i just think is adorable that that's where they met on a golf course which is fitting considering caddyshack ramus and murray stayed in each other's orbits for the next decade or so through national lampoon although harold ramus would decline lorne michael's offer during lorne's wide poaching of the second <laughs> city to join what would become saturday night live ramus and murray's stars rose concurrently Harold Ramis drafted the script for National Lampoon's Animal House, which became a record-breaking hit, while Bill Murray was coming up as one of SNL's featured stars. Working off a Harold Ramis script, Ivan Reitman picked Bill Murray to headline his film Meatballs. You ever seen that? I've never seen that. Yeah, it's fine. Well, according to legend, at least, uh, no one was sure Bill Murray was actually going to play the lead in Meatballs until he actually showed up on the first day of filming, setting the tone for his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Meatballs was a hit, setting off one of the most successful pairings in film history. Ramis 
and Murray's hot streak would grow to include Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and to a lesser extent, Ghostbusters 2, and eventually Groundhog Day, their sixth collaboration. So that is the male lead for the movie. What about the female lead for the movie, the role of Rita? This- <laughs> that was an awful segue, buddy. <laughs> Keep that in. I want folks to know how you're struggling. It'll humanize you. <laughs> Everyone listen to Jordan die on air. It's a Friday night. It's a long week. <laughs> this boggles my mind to the point where I almost think it was somebody in a listicle 15 years ago writing it as a joke and it just got picked up in the listicle echo chamber and now it's taken as canon. Apparently, they were considering Tori Amos, the beloved singer, songwriter, and pianist, for the role of Rita, which is just. I, I had, I've never heard of her being considered for any other movies. I had no idea that she has any kind of acting background. I, I, I don't fully get it. Oh, well, so it seems to stem from um, her being photographed by a British magazine uh, that she is in a room with a bunch of scripts and Groundhog Day is one of them, can be seen as one of them. Oh, And wow. I think this was before the film had even i mean this was before it was like just like her in an office or something so um, that's interesting yeah that makes sense i mean she was she would have been at her you know sort of peak of fame at this point they're always trying to break actresses in or uh, musicians into acting but i had no idea that she was because she hasn't really acted much since right i don't think so no i'm pretty sure not yeah She's so cool, though. I didn't realize that she was, like, a prodigy. Like, she, I think, is still the youngest person to have ever been admitted to the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins. She was five. That's nuts. Five. Then she was expelled at 11, I think, for playing rock and roll. I forget. It was some, like, really puritanical reason, if I remember correctly. Good for her. I interviewed her. She was exactly as whimsical and, and supernatural-seeming as you'd hope. Nice. Yeah. Production considered auditioning comedians to play opposite Bill Murray, but they didn't want to have someone who was going to be, you know, vying for laughs and mugging against the very mercurial, very improvisational Bill Murray. And instead, they sought somebody who would just be in a ceaseless torrent of warmth and intelligence in the form of Andy McDowell, who is great. Bill Murray really liked her because she reminded him of his first girlfriend that he had in the second grade. That's cute. Yeah. She chose to speak with her natural South Carolina accent for the film, which caused a minor rewrite to the line, oh, let's not spoil it, when Ned Ryerson, the annoying Ned Ryerson, proposes a three-person celebration because her accent made the original word ruin difficult to understand. How would that be rendered in a Southern let's accent? Let's not ruin it. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I go. Wow, you're better than you're better than ChatGPT for my uh, my accent. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Well, when it puts me out of a job someday, I'll say. <laughs> At least I could do a better Southern accent than yeah, these. They used to tell me I was better than you. <laughs> Did I ever send you? I, I cloned my own voice oh, by I using those drafts. Yeah, that was pretty. Yeah. That was pretty great. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll splice that in here. <laughs> Hey guys, I generated my own voice through some voice cloning software. Does this sound anything like me? Speaking of annoying conversations that nobody wants to have, this brings us to... He's a beloved. I love him. I can't help but love him. Ned Ryerson. Ned! Needle-nose Ned! Ned Ryerson! You know, everybody knows Ned. <laughs> He's played by Stephen Tobolsky. 
And he said that shooting the movie was sort of like being in it. Harold Ramis couldn't decide on the weather conditions for the background of Phil and Ned's encounters, so he shot their nine scenes together multiple times in differing conditions. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about, you know, all the scenes that they repeat pretty much across the board, at least the outdoor ones, had to be shot on exactly the same day for continuity reasons. Yeah, it's insane, man. Especially trying to do it where they shot it, which we'll get to. Yeah. No, it's really insane. And just all the little challenging things about just even like the extras in the background, having to match their movements over and over again, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, harder than you think. And I think there's some CinemaSins video that shows that sometimes there are like actors in slightly different places or little little things in the background. Yeah, I know, I know. know. Chud. Uh, During filming, Harold Ramis and screenwriter Danny Rubin wanted to add another Ned Ryerson scene at the last minute, so Tobolsky wrote up a scene in which Ned Ryerson explains numerous insurance policies, his insurance salesman, to Phil Connors, basing the interaction off of his own insurance guy. And supposedly, the insurance guy later watched the movie and called Tobolsky and thanked him for portraying insurance agents accurately rather than mocking them. (laughs) Which is funny, because that was not my takeaway. (laughs) Yes, I believe he assumed he had been knocking them. Stephen <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Tobolsky's funny. He's this, you know, veteran character actor. He's got the he's got the TMI honorary prefix, veteran character actor Stephen Tobolsky. Sure. He tells the story of making the Jason Priestley comedy Calendar Girl with another guy named Kurt Fuller, who's a, a very similar character actor. And Kurt also auditioned for the role of Ned Ryerson and was openly talking about how he had the part all wrapped up and in the bag when they were making this other movie together. So when Tobolsky's kept getting callbacks for this role, he kept it quiet on the set of this movie because he didn't want to make things awkward with his co-star. And so when Kurt Fuller comes in one day all pissy that he didn't get the role at all, he learned he'd been passed over, Tobolsky kept his mouth shut. And then at the Groundhog Day premiere, Tobolsky exits the theater and he sees Kurt Fuller was in attendance for some reason and staring him down. But Fuller apparently was gracious. He came up to him and said, well, you took my part from me, but at least you did a good job. And Tobolsky, he's, he's funny. He does a lot of talks and one-man shows and monologues, and you can find clips of these on YouTube. And yeah, they're, they're worth watching. They're cute. He tells the story about being in ancient Roman ruins in the south of France with his family on vacation, and he got recognized by the guy selling tickets. He said this guy couldn't speak English, but he knew the word Ned. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ironically, given that the film catapulted Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, to new levels of fame, the three-month shoot actually took place in Woodstock, Illinois, 50 miles outside of Chicago, not far from where Ramis grew up, part of the reason he chose it. However, the continuity error showcased in the, or I, I guess the cinema sin, if you will, is showcased <laughs> in Ned Ryerson's scene, where you can clearly see a sign in the background reading Woodstock Jewelers. They scouted over 60 towns for the location before settling on Woodstock, which even came equipped with the pothole that Phil steps in. <laughs> I've seen conflicting explanations okay. on this. Why'd you make uh, me read it then? Well, no, I, I've seen some, some people said that that was an actual pothole in town, and other people say that the production actually created what surely must be the most famous pothole in cinema. However, I do know that there's a plaque in town that reads Bill Murray stepped here on the sidewalk where that pothole is, which I think is great. The, the town of Woodstock is really adorable in the way that it leaned into Groundhog Day tourists, which is very much a thing. They sell all sorts of merch like stuffed groundhogs, and there are fans of the movie who regularly get married on the bandstand in the center of town, hmm. which is cute, question mark? I think, I think I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him. You know what? Why not? Yeah, why not let him have that? Yeah. Uh, Woodstock now capitalizes on its cinematic fame by having its own Groundhog Day with its own rodent, unimaginably named Woodstock Willie. Get your own thing. <laughs> Production's choice backfired, however, when the people of Punxsutawney, offended by this decision, didn't allow their sacred hog to be used for the film. Production had to breed sacred a small... <laughs> you heard me. Production had to breed a small family of the little bastards <laughs> uh, for their uses. 
<laughs> While the film differs from IRL Punxsutawney in that the insanely named Gobbler's Knob is actually located in a wooded area on the city limits, not in the town center, Punxsutawney did send their own representatives to ensure the accuracy of the actual ceremony. In later years, Ramis and Murray have both come to Pennsylvania to act as honorary grand marshals for the day's activities, so at least there are no long-term grudges. It was probably helped Thank by the God. Fa- yeah, well, this was probably helped by the fact that the movie boosted attendance for Punxsutawney's Groundhog Day from around 5,000 people to 35,000 people, according to Tom Dunkel, at one time the president of the town's Groundhog Club. Did you ever go? You're a Pennsylvania no. boy. Oh. <laughs> it's freezing yeah, in that yeah, part of the true. world. Why would you go? Th- and then they just hold him up. They do the whole rigmarole. And then what? what they're, what's there to do? Just get drunk? Sure. Buy stuffed animals? Uh, sure. They're made in Vietnam? Like, no one cares. I don't like, I don't get it. We were probably... Uh, <gasps> uh, <laughs> befitting Illinois in March, chunks of the shoot were conducted in temperatures as low as 20 degrees, which left Bill Murray irritable and chapped being outside filming for up to 12 hours a day. Stephen Tobolowsky recalled that for their scene, to prepare for having to repeatedly immerse his foot in a freezing puddle... Murray first wrapped his foot in saran wrap, then a layer of neoprene, then two pairs of socks, then his shoe. As soon as the shot was finished, Toblowski explained, Bill walked off and then came the torrent of expletives until he was rushed into the building where there were three of the women from the costumes department with blow dryers. They ripped off his socks and ripped off the neoprene and ripped off the saran wrap and started blow drying his foot with hot air so he wouldn't get frostbite and lose his foot. Meanwhile, Andy McDowell did actually get frostbite. (laughs) And the weather was so cold at points that actors began uh, having trouble articulating their words after a while because their tongues were so cold. I am the weather! The warming weather then, as shooting progressed, presented new problems. Temperatures began to creep past 80 degrees, and then production had to start bringing in fake snow to make it look like winter, but actors and extras had to continue to wear their winter garb in the heat of summer. The shifting skies and lighting conditions of the season were big problems. And as his own shorthand, because the film was shot out of sequence, Murray developed a, uh, a, a quick guide for his own character consistently, repeatedly interrupting Harold Ramis's pre-take instructions by just asking, just tell me, good Phil or bad Phil? <laughs> I mean, I think this was, it was slightly mean-spirited. It was like Harold Ramis trying to be a director and give him motivation and talk about the performance. And Bill Murray's just dismissed it. Just tell me, good Phil or bad Phil? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, despite the prevalence of scenes shot in what is supposed to be the Tip Top Cafe, that is not a real place and was created specifically for the film. However, after the movie's success, a real restaurant named Tip Top Bistro opened, which then transitioned to the Jackie's Cookie Shop, Bella's Gelateria, a Caribbean chicken place, and per your Google Map search, a taqueria. Reads like the worst Joni Mitchell song ever. Hey, Cave Tip Top Cafe, put up a taqueria. <laughs> I was just going to say, most disingenuous laugh in all of music yeah, history. My, my, fake Joni, my fake Joni laugh. <laughs> That's a soundboard I want. Ooh. Okay. Let's see no, I, I, I don't want. I don't want. <laughs> Do not want. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, Bob. <laughs> for Phil's pastry gorging scene, Bill Murray was offered the use of the customary Hollywood spit bucket 
which is a disgusting bit of out of frame movie magic for actors to spit screen used food, screen used food into instead of making themselves sick by actually imbibing in food take after take after take. Bill, however, declined and actually ate most of what his character did, though he later admitted to getting sick after eating too much angel food cake. There's a story of um, Elizabeth Taylor's, I think it was her third husband, died in a plane crash while she was making Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with uh, Paul Newman. And the director Mm. of the movie, I forget his name, uh, she, she stopped eating. She was so depressed, she just stopped eating, was losing all this weight. And to try to get her to eat, he kept asking for more and more takes of every scene where she they were having dinner. I think there was a scene where she was like eating cake or something. And he kept asking for more and more and more takes just to try to get her to eat. Oh, the things we do to women in Hollywood. <laughs> well, I think he was trying. He was worried about her. I think he was trying to. Or he was worried about his dailies. <laughs> I didn't actually. I, I didn't think about that. <laughs> and therein lies the difference. Yes. Uh, One of Groundhog Day's hallmark Easter eggs is on display in the diner scenes. You'll notice that all the clocks in the background of the diner are stopped, representing Phil's whole stuck-in-time situation. It's on the nose, but it's effective. It's cool. Mm -hmm. There are also some time-related errors in the film, though. Bill Murray is actually the one who pointed them out. He said, even though it's sunny out when I wake up every day at 6 in the morning, in the real Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, the sun didn't rise until 7.25 on Groundhog Day. I guess we goofed. <laughs> Cinema sins. <Yeah>. Ding. <laughs> Speaking of the wake up scene, the detail of Sonny and Cher's irrepressible I got you, babe, greeting Phil on his eternal day was apparently in Danny Rubin's script from the beginning. Rubin would later say it was because of the song's unique reprise at the end. He's quoted as saying, if you listen to the recording at the very end, it sort of winds down with a big, slow, do it with me. I no. got <laughs> I hate this song so much. I got you, babe. And you think it's over, and then it creeps back in. I got you, babe. I got you, babe, over and over again. I thought this repetition was perfect. The timing never worked out for them to use it in the movie that way, but I guess because it's a love song, and because even though it's catchy, it would drive you crazy after a while, it was always a good idea. It is. It is the perfect song. It's hilarious. Oh, it's so annoying. Speaking of the other music in the film, Jordan... That's right. Another fun Bill fact. Hashtag Bill facts. Tweet at us, folks. <laughs> when Phil is learning the piano at his teacher's house, he stumbles over Rhapsody on a Theme by Pagnini by Sergei Rachmaninoff. Paganini, you Philistine. <laughs> I'll keep that. Just to show what, what a better musician you are than me. Just uh, a more well-read one yeah. in certain genres, perhaps. <laughs> Paganini's the guy. Paganini's really fascinating. He's like the uh, one of the original like sold his soul to the devil guys because he was like constantly sick and like on the verge of dying and like a complete wastrel on stage. But he was um, he would do these insane showy bits of. He always had this long black cloak and he would do these insane showy bits of, you know, uh, showmanship where his um, he would break one string on his violin at a time and finish a co- an audience on on one string. Um, and his joint, he could, he could, he was like double jointed. They think he had Marfans, the same thing that, um, Lincoln had. And so he could make these incredible stretches on violin. And so his stuff, his compositions are so tough to play that they've all found like a second life is like chop busters for guitar. Um, in fact, in the, um, Paganini's Caprice, I think the 18th one is in the movie Crossroads. It's quoted at the end when it's like a recurring thing in the movie that Ralph Macchio's character 
is trying to learn how to play. And then in the climactic guitar fight between Steve Vai and <laughs> Ralph Macchio, uh, I think it's might be Ry Cooter, might be Eric Johnson. Somebody plays Paganini's Caprice in the end there. So quick sidebar in Paganini. Did you just do that? Like off yeah. the off the wow. <laughs> Proving my point. I can't even say the guy's name. Well, that's all much more interesting than the hashtag Bill fact I had, which was that that's actually Bill Murray playing that song when he arrives at his piano lesson. Though Bill doesn't read sheet music, he learned most of it by ear. But he's quite a musical cat. You know, he's done performances backed by different musicians live. He has an album out uh, with a cellist, I believe. Was it really? I know he was like, he played sings. like Crossroads he play music festivals it. with like yeah. Clapton. Ugh, Clapton. <laughs> Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis deliberately omitted the many deaths that Phil describes in the film to keep things appropriate for all ages. Trying to explain what's happening to him to Rita, he states, I've been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. These have been interpreted as uh, nods to either Grigory Rasputin, the famously <laughs> insane uh, whisperer to the... Uh, Sar Alexander, who was... Oh, Sar Nicholas. Sar Nicholas, please excuse me. I don't care about Russian culture. Sar, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, except for Gregory Rasputin, um, who, after being, uh, you know, granted too much uh, access to the family and running roughshod over all of the women, uh, was poisoned, stabbed, shot, castrated, and drowned, and was probably still alive until right at the point when he drowned after being like wrapped in a, didn't they like wrap him in a carpet too, just to make sure. Yeah. Uh, or this could also be seen as a reference to ghostbusters Two, where the main villain Vigo, the Carpathian is said to have died after being poisoned, shot, stabbed, hung, stretched, disemboweled, drawn and quartered. You got your Paganini moment. I want to, I want to amend my, it was actually Tsar Nicholas the second. Um, and it was really his wife, uh, the Tsarina Alexandria who, who, uh, looked to, yes. to, to the mad, the famous mad monk as a, uh, as a, as a trusted advisor. And after he was killed, according to legend, his, uh, penis was cut off and then, uh, I believe pickled. It was bought for $8,000 and now resides in the museum of erotica in St. Petersburg. Uh, and you have sent me a picture of it in the chat. No, I didn't. That was, that's Bill Murray oh. playing guitar with Eric Clapton, which is more offensive. Oh. <laughs> no, that's much worse. Um, the, the, yeah, it's because wow, the kid it's had... It's 12 it's cause inches. Her kid, it's because her, her kid had hemophilia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man. Russians. Uh, despite the deaths being omitted, there was a bit of real-life calamity that befell Murray uh, from his Groundhog scene partners. Specifically one of them, Scooter, who Murray claimed hated me from day one. Uh, in the scene where he abducts Phil and drives off with it, the animal bit him repeatedly through his leather glove. Uh, Murray recalled an interview, I went to the dock and said, hey, I got bit by a groundhog. Should I get a rabies shot? He said, well, no. You mean I'm not going to get it? Well, no. See, we don't know if groundhogs give rabies. And I'm like, because you don't know, you can't give me a shot? He said, that's right. And what if I get it? Then what? He said, then we'll know, won't we? <laughs> uh, comedian and character actor Paul Lind uh, was the inspiration for one of Groundhog Day's best bits. Yes. Uh, in one of Lind's routines, he describes how he once drove through the San Fernando Valley while drunk, and after crashing into a mailbox, was pulled up on by the police, who held him at gunpoint. He leaned out his window and he said to them, I'll have a cheeseburger, hold the onions, and a large Sprite. Oh, you gotta do it like it. 
I'll have a cheeseburger, hold the onions, and a large Sprite. <laughs> That's a good Paul Lind. No, you got it. It's going to uh, be quaver. Large Sprite. Sprite. No, no, no. Now I'm veering into um, Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. He's a menace. <laughs> um, a similar joke was also told by Shecky Green, involving him driving his car into a Las Vegas fountain, thus fulfilling our long bygone comedians that Jordan is perfectly aware of. For I, I think he just died. Oh. Well, yeah, he did. He's, he just have a New Year's Eve. Oh, bummer. Oh, Shecky. Oh, Shecky. Hardly knew you. 97, damn. Oh, yeah, it was time. Sadly, much of Bill Murray's time with Harold Ramis on Groundhog Day was affected by a messy divorce from his first wife. Bill poured himself into the role of Phil, which manifested in him annoying Ramis with all those early morning phone calls we talked about earlier during the script development and contributing to a dynamic that ultimately led to their creative split. That difficulty carried into filming. Uh, at one point, when he was filming a scene in a car with Andy McDowell, Murray just, according to Ramis, took off for like 15 minutes. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Which it doesn't maybe it doesn't sound like much, but filmmaking, when everything's planned like a military maneuver, that screws you up. Yeah, I mean, Jim Cameron freaked out at uh, Arnold right. Schwarzenegger for it on the set of True Lies. That's right. I was thinking about that, yeah. Harold Ramis said Bill would be, quote, irrationally mean and unavailable and was constantly late. Later would recall that he just told Bill, just what we tell our children. You don't have to throw tantrums to get what you want. Just say what you want. As we touched on earlier, they clashed heads from the earliest days of the production when it came to the tone of the movie. Danny Rubin would recall, they were like two brothers who weren't getting along, and they were pretty far apart on what the movie was about. Bill wanted it to be more philosophical, and Harold kept reminding him that it was a comedy. There's one scene in the film that you'll never watch again the same way after knowing what we're about to tell you, so we're sorry. Uh, it's the scene where Phil is reading to Rita after she falls asleep. That actually happened to Bill Murray. Uh, his wife had fallen asleep on their wedding night after drinking too much champagne, and Murray read to her as she slept. Ouch. Yeah. Um, the relationship between Murray, Ramis, and the rest of production got straight up toxic in the scene where Phil gets into a snowball fight with a bunch of kids. Harold Ramis directed the kids to pelt Bill as hard as they possibly could with snowballs. And when Bill figured it out, he just started pelting them back. Uh, I think Ramis gave him, him like ice balls too. I think he gave him like, <laughs> he asked Andy McDowell to really slap him in one scene. And according to Harold Ramis' daughter, Violet, one day on set, Harold finally lost his temper, something he rarely did, and screamed at Bill, grabbed him by the collar, and shoved him up against the wall. The two fell out after filming wrapped and didn't speak for, like, what, 20 years yeah. or something like that? Some friends uh, theorized that Murray had come to resent Ramis for his role in helping Murray's star rise. Michael Schamberg, a Hollywood producer who knew Ramis since college and had let M Bill Murray sleep on his couch at times, said... Bill owes everything to Harold, and he probably has a thimble full of gratitude. None of this apparently stopped Harold Ramis from keeping the overcoat that Bill Murray wears in the film. Do you think he smelled it occasionally to, to remember his friend? And do you think that after Ramis died, Bill got it, and then Bill smelled it to remember his friend? Because it had been at Ramis' house for so long, it probably smelled like Ramis. Do you think anyone sm smelled this coat, is what I'm asking you. Stop looking at me like that. It's a valid question. <laughs> You're in a dark place. <laughs> no, it's that I've, um, I've got in, I've got into perfumes in the last couple of weeks as a as a way to trigger memories, as a way of time travel. Did I tell you about this? I forget if I told you about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you did. you, you, oh, you sure did, bud. Oh, 
Just you just don't tell me you've gotten into taxidermy at any point, because then I'm really gonna do a wellness check. Um Murray has de- continually declined to speak about the feud, although Ramus has. It's a huge hole in my life, he said. But there were so many pride issues about reaching out. Bill would give you his kidney if you needed it, but he wouldn't necessarily return your phone calls. Uh, a New Yorker reporter named Tad Friend, who was writing a piece about Ramus in 2004, reached Murray after several attempts and told him he was, what he was writing about and that he wanted to interview Bill. Really? Murray responded and asked Fred to call him back in a week. When Friend did, Murray th- said, I've thought about it and I really don't have anything to say. Ramus had some really heartbreaking quotes that he gave to the AV club. I've had many dreams about Bill that were friends again. There was a great reunion feeling in those dreams. Bill was a strong man. He was a rock for us. You'd do a movie with Bill, a big comedy in those early days, just knowing he could save the day no matter how bad the script was, that we'd find something through improvisation. That was our alliance, kind of, our big bond. I could help him be the best funny Bill Murray he could be, and I think he appreciated that then. And I don't know where that went, but it's there on film. So whatever happens between us in the future, at least we have those expressions. Man. That's so sad. That is really sad. Well, there's at least one grace note to this sad story. Brian Doyle Murray, Bill's brother, convinced Bill to visit Ramus as he lay dying in his North Shore home in 2014, where Murray showed up with a police escort and donuts early one morning. (laughs) The two spoke of their beloved Chicago Cubs and reportedly buried the hatchet. When Ramus died later that year, Murray's statement summed up their collaborations and added simply, he earned his keep on this planet. God bless him. And then, a week later at the Oscars in 2014, while presenting Best Cinematography, Murray read the list of nominees before adding, oh, and we forgot one, Harold Ramis for Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. Which is really sweet. <laughs> For years, Bill Murray claimed to dislike Groundhog Day, but in an interview after Ramus's death, his feeling apparently softened. He would describe it as an extraordinary movie, and the execution was really good. Coming from the Murricane, this was high praise. I don't know if this anecdote will count as a palate cleanser, but <laughs> regardless, here we go. Uh, actor <laughs> Michael Shannon of The Intense Bug Eyes. Did I ever tell you I saw that guy in the subway one time? No! It was right after he'd been in the Superman movie where he played General Zod. And it was just like me and him and a few other people in the car. I was riding like the middle of the day. And uh, we made eye contact. Whoa. And I, and I wordless, like silently mouthed the words, kneel before Zod. <laughs> Did he react? He looked away in disgust. Oh! <laughs> I think it was like right after the movie had come out, it was just getting panned. Um, <laughs> that's my celebrity story. Uh, anyway, Shannon played the role of Fred in the film, and he was a big fan of Bill Murray, so he was realizing one of his dreams by working with him, and this was his first movie to boot. One day, he saw Bill listening to the talking heads on his boombox between takes, and asked an obviously dumb and retrospect question about whether or not he liked the band. Murray then supposedly said something that made Shannon realize what a stupid question that had been. He said in an interview, So then I was crushed. I was devastated. And I was moping around. One day... Harold Ramis, during lunch, asked me to come play pool with him, because he liked to play pool during breaks. We were talking, and he said, You having fun? And I said, Yeah, but I feel really bad. I think I said something really stupid to Mr. Murray. I told him the story, and I basically said, I don't think Mr. Murray likes me very much. And Harold said, No, 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 don't worry about that. I'm sure you just caught him at a bad time or something. So when we were finally, and I've been hanging around for two weeks, when we finally get to the reason I was actually there, which was to shoot the scene and the dance at the end, 
For most of the shoot, I had to be in the restaurant every time there was a scene there, even though 90% of the time the camera wasn't even pointed in my direction. They just wanted all the same people in the restaurant. Anyway, we finally get to the big dance scene, and I'm really excited because I'm finally going to get to do some acting. And we're rehearsing, and Bill Murray and Andy McDowell are going around to all the different people, and they come to us. And Harold comes up, and he says, Now, before we rehearse this scene, I want Bill to say something. And Bill turned to me, and he was like, I like you, Mike. I'm not upset with you. I'm sorry if you thought I was upset with you. Harold Ramis had gone to Bill Murray and told him that he had hurt my feelings. It was really one of the strangest things that ever happened to me. I couldn't believe it. Would you be mortified? I would be, because yeah. the way that Bill Murray would deliver that, you couldn't tell if he was being passive-aggressive or not. Oh, I'm, I guess just like hearing, he hearing was. Bill Murray say, I like you, I'm not mad at you, could be the most devastating thing <laughs> yeah. that ever happened. That's so weird. That I, I mean, I guess that's the perfect but good Bill on Murray Reyes, anecdote. I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. I... <sighs> a part of me that thinks he made it they were just playing sick mind games yeah with each other, no you're you know? right you're right yeah it probably came out during an argument you're making the whole cast feel shitty you know, that no, new guy's yeah. his first damn movie he loves you and you broke his heart that's kind of nuts that he was i mean i guess that makes sense but for continuity reasons they just wanted everybody in the restaurant but it's kind of nuts that he was hanging around he had like four lines and was hanging around for two weeks and also it's kind of cool of ramus to just like go play pool with a like, yeah. like kind of a glorified extra basically yeah i like that yeah i've never heard anything but great things about harold ramus same yeah well now we're going to talk about the end of the movie when phil breaks the spell and wakes up with what i can only assume to be the love of his life they shot 25 takes of the closing scene when phil wakes up next to rita he's freed from his time loop and they shot so many because no one was sure how the scene would actually play and Bill actually refused to even shoot the scene at all until it was decided whether or not Phil should be wearing pajamas. Apparently, the debate over the did they or didn't they Phil and Rita moment became a source of debate around the cast and crew. To, to spell it out, they wasn't sure if, if they should be wearing just what he was wearing the night before, the clothes he was wearing the night before, or if they should be naked in, um, in loving embrace. I'm just watching you die trying to get out of this bit of minor sexual arcana. Like... I see the flop sweat forming on your brow. <laughs> the debate was whether or not the characters had sex. Finish, finish reading. Um, <laughs> Harold Ramis ended up putting it to a vote among the cast and crew, which ended in a tie. And according to Stephen Tobolsky, a.k.a. Ned Ryerson, it was a young woman in the crew who broke the tie. As he told the story, one girl in the movie, it was her first film, she was the assistant set director. She raised her hand and said, he is absolutely wearing the clothes he wore the night before. If he's not wearing the clothes he wore the night before, it will ruin the movie. That's my vote. So Harold Ramis said, then that's what we're going to do. I, you know, I gotta say, I hadn't considered the full impact of the film's ending until researching this episode. Danny Rubin describes it by saying that on February 3rd, the day after Groundhog Day, Phil loses his superpowers. And something I never really considered, he may suffer disappointment that no day for the rest of his life will ever live up to his final perfect Groundhog Day. Stephen Tobolsky, a.k.a. Ned Ryerson, summed up the movie's catharsis very well. He said, the greatest gift for Phil is to become finite again. He's going to die. He's going to age. Time is going to go on. But now he has the keys to use his time well. That's beautiful. Yeah, I really like that. So speaking of time, 
Speaking of time. Give us a brief history of time. (laughs) There are 38 different days depicted in the movie, which couldn't possibly account for everything even mentioned in different lines. The total amount of time Phil spent in the loop isn't explained in the film, but on the DVD commentary, Ramis said that Phil lived that day for 10,000 years and then whittled it down to around 10. Yeah, give it, give it 10. Yeah, man. Yeah. He's also said 30 or 40 years. The 10,000 years thing comes from Buddhist doctrine, which claims that it takes that long for a soul to evolve to the next level. Uh, Ramis married a Buddhist woman and obviously picked up on some of it. Well, so I said it's round. That's, that's handy. <laughs> Meanwhile... In an early draft of the script, Rubin said that it was really 70 or 80 years. Of course, this being the internet age, fans have taken upon themselves to figure this out, with estimates ranging from 8 years, 8 months, and 16 days, to 12 years, 403 days. Or, I guess, 13 years. And... Why did <laughs> I don't that get written I like that? I don't know that? why that's written like that. I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I wasn't trying to foil you. I have no idea. <laughs> Simon Gallagher from WhatCulture.com ran a thorough investigation. Uh, claiming that the time it would have taken for Phil to become a virtuoso pianist, fluent French speaker, and professional ice sculptor, amid all his other escapades, would have run nearly 34 years. We watched 38 days, another 414 days are mentioned, and Gallagher then used Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours of Mastery Theory to tally the rest. In fact, it could have been longer, assuming that Phil spent a number of days simply lying in bed, steeping in existential anguish. 34 years. Yeah. The Mosh. It's our age. Yeah, right. The Mosh YouTube channel broke it down thusly, basing it on average learning curve, meaning that they assumed Phil has an average ability to acquire and retain knowledge. And also assuming that rather than achieve virtuosity in any of these um, things, he's just being really good at one thing, like memorizing one song really well or memorizing French phrases really well. So they said he's seen a movie a hundred times. It took him six months to learn how to throw cards. He lists the ways that he's died. They estimate how many days it would take to learn the timing of the events. So memorizing Jeopardy, for example. Uh, committing the perfect crimes. There are various day counts. with the, And here's what it says. They conservatively estimate that getting to know Rita would take a thousand days. Or under three years. So hmm. They put the grand total at 4,576 days, or 12 years, 6 months, and 11 days, which puts you back into Harold Ramis's original time frame. So, yeah, let's see, between 12 and 34 years. Uh, relatedly, the original cut of Groundhog Day was over three <laughs> hours long, <laughs> which obviously the filmmakers decided to trim down to a more manageable length in the edit. Yes, the version that was released was much shorter. And now we're going to talk about the release of the film because Groundhog Day. In a segment Day, we like to call "Getting That Hog Out." I, you know, I feel really bad. You gave some really incredible section headings to this outline, and I haven't read any of them. Oh, I, I feel right. as though I should go back. Hogs well that ends well for the ending segment. Uh, the hog will rise again. Hogging out with Nick Cannon. That was good. <laughs> L- Lords of Hogtown was very good. Uh, check out my Hogcast. Is probably my favorite for obvious reasons. Oh, you uh, like Hogger versus Hogger, like Kramer versus Kramer. That was good. That was good. Okay, okay. I, I know when that hog line bling was good. Um, <laughs> Who let the hogs out is probably my favorite. Yeah, Low hanging fruit, but I had to do it. Hogspirations, not 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 the best, but I no, appreciate the theme. There's no bad ideas yeah. in brainstorming. Yeah, but okay, yeah, getting that hog out. We're getting Groundhog out into the world. <laughs> getting Groundhog Day out in the world. 
Because Groundhog Day is only celebrated in the USA and Canada, which I didn't realize, international countries had to translate the title differently because locals wouldn't know what the hell Groundhog Day meant. Does anybody really know what Groundhog Day means? Mm. In Sweden, the movie translates to Monday the entire week. And although the film never clarified what day of the week it is, most fans speculate that it's Tuesday, the date of Groundhog Day in 1993. The German movie title, well, wait a minute, if it was the year before, which is really, you know, the movie came out in 1993. If it was the year before, when people using their common sense would assume the movie was made, I think Groundhog Day would have been on a Monday that year. So it works. Swedes never get it wrong. <laughs> Volvo, Ikea, look at it, it's great. The German movie title is The Groundhog Greets Every Day. I would love to know how that's said in German. <laughs> Probably in a foreboding, somewhat yeah. sinister fashion. <laughs> and after the movie debuted, this phrase, The Groundhog Greets Every Day, became a humorous proverb for Germans, meaning something that is frequently repeated, particularly something irritating and awkward. I mean, it's kind of like how in this country, Groundhog Day has become an expression. Brazilians know the film as Spell of Weather. Mm. And the French, predictably, took the most hardline existentialist route by calling it A Day Without End. My favorite Sartre book. Yeah. Funnily enough, the film wasn't actually released on Groundhog Day 1993. An honor that you note instead went to Homeward Bound, a movie I saw with my father and cried during, an experience that taught me about shame. Well, I mean, you do, they do plan this stuff. So you have to wonder that was coming out. Was that Touchstone or Disney? They must have. I think it was Disney. Yeah. So somebody must have figured, don't put your family film in against Disney's. No. When did it come out? It came out in like June or something? No. It came out a week after Groundhog Day. It came out like 10 days or something afterwards. Yeah. The film was, of course, a hit because, as you mentioned and I echo, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. It grossed nearly $71 million domestically and $105 million worldwide, which is many orders of magnitude past its budget. Though, as you know, that's a tricky stat since budget estimates range from $14.6 million to $30 million. We do know the box office returns, though, and it made $70.9 million domestically and $105 million worldwide. Pretty, said, pretty good. Not bad. Not bad. Critics loved it initially and continued to. In his reappraisal of the movie, Roger Ebert wrote, Groundhog Day is a film that finds its note and purpose so precisely that its genius may not be immediately noticeable. Like I said at the top, me and Ebert. It unfolds so inevitably, is so entertaining, so apparently effortless, that you have to stand back and slap yourself before you see how good it really is. Could not agree more. At the time, Hollywood had just come out of an era when it had been heavily criticized for sex and violence portrayed in mainstream blockbusters, so course-correcting to a broader family film was inevitable from both cultural and business standpoints. Because as production costs rose, anything that appealed to a broader audience would make more money in both theaters and home rentals and purchases. By 1993, the three all-time highest-grossing films in North America were family-oriented. E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Star Wars, which I don't know if I'd classify as family-oriented, but okay. And Home Alone. That's hilarious. How it's, it's so funny to me how much money Home Alone made. Yeah, right. Columbia Pictures chairman Mark Canton said that PG-rated films were much more likely to make over $100 million compared to adult-oriented fare. So Groundhog Day was rated PG, and the film's buzz seemed to position it as a potential sleeper success. 
Groundhog Day was one of many family films released in 1993, including Free Willy, Last Action Hero, and the highly anticipated Jurassic Park, which would go on to become the highest grossing film for a few years. Before Star Wars came back. Yet no less an authority than screenwriting legend William Goldman said in 1993, I think Groundhog Day is the one that will be, of all the movies that came out this last year, it's the one that will be remembered in 10 years. As we touched on earlier, Bill Murray was initially unhappy with the finished film. In a 1993 interview, he said that he wanted to focus on the comedy and the underlying theme of people repeating their lives out of fear of change, while Harold Ramis wanted to focus on the redeeming power of love, though he eventually conceded that Ramis had ultimately been right to do what he did. Janet Maslin, in her interview, felt that the film was well-balanced between sentimentality and nihilism, just like our podcast. (laughs) But Bill Murray eventually came around on the film, as we mentioned earlier also, calling it probably the best work I've done and probably the best work Harold will ever do. Kind of seems like an underhanded compliment. Well, he was right. Yeah. Despite its acclaim and cash flow, the film got a lot of negative attention, including from religious groups and spiritual gurus, which baffled Harold Ramis because he didn't think anyone would be taking this stuff that seriously. Critic Owen Gleiberman also compared it unfavorably to Back to the Future, which he found more cleverly structured. False. (laughs) No. And Back to the Future, I think, is probably, if you force me to choose my favorite movie, and I love this movie, obviously, as I've said. No. Very different. I I hate that. Makes me mad. Get his ass. Yeah. (laughs) Get him, Gleiberman. Get Gleiberman. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Interestingly, after Groundhog Day was released, several science fiction writers came forward and argued that the screenplay stole their idea. Richard Lupov claimed that Groundhog Day ripped off his short story 12.01 p.m., while Ken Grimwood charged that it was actually based off of his story, Replay, which I have never read. And this brings us to the the curious case of the 2014 movie, The Edge of Tomorrow, also known as... Fantastic movie. Can't recommend it enough. Really? Yeah, it's awesome. Well, you take this segment then. I've never seen it. Oh, it's so good. It, it's All I have to tell you is you just get to watch Tom Cruise die over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's subtitled it, like Live, Die, Repeat, Live, Die, right? Repeat. That was what yeah. it was originally supposed to be called and the networks chickened out and retitled Edge of Tomorrow. It's basically Groundhog Day, but as an alien invasion movie. Uh, and there's some funny nods. The uh, Tom Cruise's co-star is named Rita. Uh, both protagonists awake at 6 a.m. with the line, same old, same old, and both main characters eventually pinch themselves at one point to prove that tomorrow has finally arrived. Was that so, intentional? Must I mean, it must have been intentional. I'm sure. And I think there's another one. There's another one, too. It's, um, is it Happy Death Day, where there's a, it's like a slasher film where the, there's a, a woman trapped in a Groundhog Day scenario, but a serial killer's after her. It's just a durable premise that just keeps on giving. Danny Rubin was the first. Speaking of durable premises that keep on giving... On to nihilism. How was that for a segue? No, I, I liked. That. I no, liked oh, it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm. I'm needy, just like you. I just mask it better. Now we must arrive at some of the spiritual, religious, and philosophical underpinnings of Groundhog Day. One precursor is good old Friedrich Nietzsche's and his Gay Science, which is not his life's work, but a book he wrote, which tells the story of a man that lives the same day over and over and over again. Writer Danny Rubin has said that. Has said that the beauty of the framework is that every, the beauty of the framework of his film is that everybody seems to bring their own way of thinking and their own discipline to bear on the ideas within it, and would express that this is absolutely. He would say that this is absolutely describing the essence of Nietzsche's philosophy. 
I think the movie shows that it's the repetition of days itself which pushes us forward in our own maturation as we start to encounter the same things over and over again. Rubin has also said that he didn't actually set out to write a spiritual work, just one about how people get stuck in patterns that they can't free themselves from. Uh, uh, like you too once memorably did. <laughs> that was a moment, I thought. It wasn't, wasn't yes, it a pattern? It wasn't, oh, yeah. It's patterned in uh, scan. It's hard to rhyme. <laughs> oh, I think it's with pattern. <laughs> Flattern. Matter. Batter. Shatter. You gotta slant, you gotta force it. You know? uh, it's gonna say it like an Irishman, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ruben called Groundhog Day a story about how to live, whose life isn't a series of days, who doesn't feel stuck from time to time. This is crystallized in the sad, funny bowling alley scene in which Phil acts two Punxsutawney men if they understand what it's like to be stuck in a place where nothing they do matters. Yeah, man, that pretty much sums it up, one replies. <laughs> Groundhog Day has also been described as a love letter to psychotherapy. Which I find interesting, and it can also be interpreted as a secular tale in which Phil is experiencing an existential crisis where primal self-indulgence is no longer satisfying, causing him to fall into a depression that he escapes by taking ownership of his own self-improvement, and then he uses his improved persona to benevolently help others. Again, though, everybody saw their own personal beliefs reflected in the film. Harold Ramis said he got calls from Buddhists, Jesuits, yogis, all saying, you must be one of us. This movie expresses our philosophy perfectly. Philosophers have compared it to the Greek mythological figure of Sisyphus, condemned to eternally roll a stone up a hill each day, only to have it roll back down. A concept that existentialist philosopher Albert Camus used as the framework for understanding the essential absurdity of existence and making your own happiness out of that in his work, The Myth of Sisyphus, which ends with, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. <laughs> At one point in the movie, Phil suggests that he's killed himself enough times to no longer exist. Ego and death. Yes. And according to Harold Ramis, at least, it's at this point that Phil becomes ready to change. Buddhist leaders suggest that Phil could be interpreted as a bodhisattva, someone who has reached the brink of nirvana and returns to earth to help others do the same. For Jews, Phil's escape from the timeline can be seen as a reward for finally learning to perform moral deeds, or mitzvah, which I assume is related to mitzvah. Yeah, mitzvah means good deeds, and there's mm. uh, <laughs> there's a scandal a while back because uh, the they found out that uh, the Hasidim in Brooklyn were uh, buying and selling mitzvah online, like on eBay. <laughs> I mean, Literally it's like, it's like Catholic indulgences. Like, yeah, I mean, one guy just being like, oh, I've got so many mitzvahs, bros. I'll, I'll sell them to you. And then he did. <laughs> Give me a good price. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> In Christianity, Phil's journey can be interpreted as a form of resurrection or as Phil being trapped in purgatory until he can earn his place in heaven through selfless acts. One Kabbalist analyzed the significance of the film's numerology. And by the way, in case you were interesting, at least one economist has published a column claiming that Groundhog Day, the movie, quote, illustrates the importance of the Mises Hayek paradigm as an alternative to equilibrium economics by illustrating the unreal nature of equilibrium theorizing. Addicts have also told Danny Rubin that the film helped them realize they were trapped in punxatanis of their own making, which is an outcome That's of this nice. film I hadn't considered, the number of people that helped get clean and lives it presumably saved which is amazing uh offsetting that <laughs> <laughs> a 
Damn, you wow, okay. Uh, we're saving the the most grim fact for last. Uh Groundhog Day passed into usage in the military for those repeatedly deployed to areas of conflict like Bosnia, Iraq, or Afghanistan. Bill Clinton was heard to actually reference this during a speech to troops in the mid-90s. Oh god, that's grim. Fuck Clinton. <laughs> Oh, here's another good header. Hogs born back ceaselessly into the past. That's great. Danny Rubin actually seemed to fare the worst out of all the folks associated with Groundhog Day. After the film's success, of course, he immediately started getting calls, but producers had pigeonholed him. They'd say, just write something normal and it'll come out Danny Rubin-y. It'll be great, he told Vulture. But I didn't want to write something normal. It's messing with the premise and the structure that makes it exciting. Man. Ruben had also <laughs> Ruben had also moved his family to New Mexico before the film wrapped and resolutely refused to play ball with the Hollywood system. His brother Michael tried to convince him to fly back for meetings, saying, They want to meet you for lunch at the Ivy, and they want to think you're a totally fun guy. You get in the door because you wrote a hit movie, but they want to see you as a guy they can play with. Ruben responded, as I probably would, by digging his heels in harder. He told Vulture, it would be like Goldie Hawn has a dysfunctional family. None of them get along, so they go camping, and in the end, they all learn to love each other. Typically, I would say, okay, I'm going to tell you your movie. He'd give them a well-laid-out three-act structure film and a standard conclusion before then telling them, under no circumstances am I going to write that movie. Speaking of being trapped in patterns, he then admitted, it took me years to understand that's why the business started disappearing. Ruben battled against this for years. He'd write scripts and sell them to, like, Universal, Amblin, Castle Rock, which is uh, Rob Reiner's production company, Miramax, but everyone wanted to rewrite them. And then when he refused, he'd be kicked off the project. People weren't responding to my stuff by making movies out of it. They were optioning it, but then there were the same arguments over and over. They were trying to make a movie that I said I was expressly not interested in making. Matthew Warkus, who directed the Groundhog Day musical that uh, Ruben ultimately help put together said Danny's got every reason to have an antagonistic relationship with this beast but ultimately it seems like Ruben has made peace with it I was always thinking I'm not a one-hit wonder I'm not a one-hit wonder but even if I am okay that's more than most people get every year to celebrate the holiday he and his wife invite all of their friends over and they move the furniture and have a dance party <laughs> that's cute one of Ruben's big returning to embrace his baby projects was a Groundhog Day musical, which first premiered in London in 2016, winning an Olivier Award and going on to be nominated for multiple Tony Awards after its Broadway debut a year later in 2017. He did this partly because he wanted to work and partly because a musical version of the film wasn't covered by the rights he'd signed over to Columbia. And Love that. Prob probably at this point needed some money. Steven Sondheim expressed early interest, but ultimately it was realized by Matthew Warchus and oh Tim Minchin is a great British yeah, comedian. I thought that'd perk you up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they approached Danny Rubin in 2012, fresh off the success of the Matilda musical. The trio collaborated for a few years before producing the finished version, and while no one really expected Bill Murray to attend, he did, and then went back the next day, which is mind-blowing and he had surprisingly positive things to say the idea that we just have to try again we just have to try again is such a beautiful powerful idea he even commended the show's cast and crew for their phenomenal efforts as actors i can't respect enough how disciplined you are and how serving you are of the process he told them according to rolling stone there's nothing worse than seeing someone that's out for themselves and you're all in it for each other 
As far as a film sequel, Haney McDowell told The Hollywood Reporter, people always say, let's do Groundhog Day again, which would be a hilarious name for a Groundhog Day sequel, actually. <laughs> Groundhog Day again. True. First of all, Bill Murray's never going to do it. True. So you can forget that. I know him. He's not going to do it. But in 2020, Bill Murray and some of the other cast members reprised their role for a Super Bowl commercial. Funnily enough, the big game also happened to fall on Groundhog Day. What better reason to bring the characters back than to advertise the Jeep Gladiator? Mm. Oh. <laughs> Brings us nice full circle. We're talking about Gladiator 2 at the beginning of this. Yeah, That's cool. Okay, I like okay, that. There we go. We're saving it. We're us. saving it. All right. The nearly two-minute advertisement showcases the vehicle while Bill Murray and the Groundhog enjoy a handful of humorous scenes together. Jeep uh, really did their due diligence for this ad. It was filmed in Woodstock, just like the original movie. And the video concludes with the line that echoes the movie. Have the day of your life over and over and over again. Because capitalism is the only thing that yields good things anymore. <laughs> a writer named Desson Thompson once snarked, Groundhog Day will never be designated a national treasure. Well, guess f***ing what, buddy? Dude, what? In 2006, it was. Baby! Groundhog Day actually didn't receive any major awards or even nominations at the time, but it's clearly won the long war in the hearts and minds of not just the public, but the official ivory towers of the film world, the American Film Institute, and the National Film Registry. So, oh, fuck yeah. Here's a perfect ending image for you. The cast reunited for the first time on the 31st anniversary of the film and the 10th anniversary of Harold Ramis' death. They came together at the Harry Carey Tavern at Navy Pier as I Got You, Babe, played on the PA. When the local groundhogs saw his shadow, Bill Murray threatened to go to town on the rodent with his cane. <laughs> well, folks, <laughs> I don't know what there's left to say about a film so perfectly constructed and uh, around a central concept that's so at once universal but deeply personal and heartfelt that every major philosophy and religion can claim <laughs> it presents their doctrines. It teaches us that loving ourselves and engaging with our communities is the only way to break the chains that we forge in life. It tells us to watch out for that last step. Perhaps the ultimate Zen statement from this movie is the one to take with us. Something's changed, and any change is good. Well said. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 